marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor, the, this people honors, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have got gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his mother, for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Can I say that one more time? Good morning. Good morning. My name is Josh Kim. I'm an assistant pastor here at Christ Central Church. We're glad that you are joining with us this morning as we gather to worship our God. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of the gospel according to Mark, a Peter's testimony at that as Mark is writing down as he walks with Christ and we as congregation have been walking with this gospel, learning what it means to follow the king, the king who came. And today we're in chapter 7 as we delve into this interesting text we come across. Tradition is a part of life. A tradition is a part of life. There are more common ones that, are, that we observe, and there are also obscure ones that sometimes we don't really recognize. We see it played out in the national holidays, such as having turkey on a Thanksgiving Thursday. We call that a Thanksgiving tradition. We often see traditions played out in sports. Uh, we talk about the tradition and pageantry of the horse racing. We say the masters, the tradition, unlike any other. And all the golfers know what that is. We also see it in our own households, as it can relate to our culture, our background, things that we're accustomed to growing up, things that we eat, times that we celebrate, 
things that we do together, traditions has a big part of how we live. For example, one of the hardest things I, I have to get over or adjust to is not taking off my shoes whenever I visit one of our church members' house. Because growing up in a Korean household, it was a common place for me to always take my shoes off at the door. So whenever I go over to someone's house, I have this tendency that I want to take off my shoes and no one's doing that. And I often find myself fighting that urge to do so. And I found out that it is not just my Korean household that did that. It's actually common in Asian countries as well as New Zealand. And a lot of Eastern Europe practice that same tradition as well. The tradition can be even regards to face covering, face masks that we're wearing. As we see a lot in the Asian countries, the face mask is a common thing even before COVID. And I just want to say thank you, Pastor Derek, for sending that email in light of the CDC guidelines. We as a church, we're really wrestling with that. So please continue to pray for us. And we want to communicate with you in how to go about as we continue to reopen our church. We also see traditions playing out in the church setting, as we talked about before, both in theological setting, as we as a church, we say we belong to the Reformed tradition. Or some of you will also see the tradition of in how we dress, or in the wear, whether we wear suits, shorts, whatever maybe, where we wear a hat in the sanctuary or not. I still see many of you, when we pray, you take off your hat when we pray. Notice that that's part of a tradition that you grew up in as well. Or how we worship, the songs that we sing, the choices that we make in how we organize worship. Traditions play a big role in how we do things. Tradition is a part of life. It reveals to us who we are. Sometimes it gives a social cues to those who are not part of the tradition that you're going into. It is like a window that shows our hearts as a community or even person to the values that we hold dear. As James K. Smith once said, liturgies or customs we follow make us certain kinds of people. And what defines us is what we love. It makes us a certain kinds of people. What defines us is what we love. So with that in mind, when we look at chapter 7 of Gospel Mark, we could easily dismiss tradition as a wrong thing and push on people, uh, the tradition that's pushed on people, and Jesus gets into a confrontation with the Pharisees and scribes in this chapter as they come down from Jerusalem to pick a fight with them. And it has to do with tradition of purity laws. In verse 2, it says, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. It seems like a tradition is a bad thing here, right? They're pushing this tradition upon the disciples. But on a closer examination of the text, what we find that it is not the tradition that Jesus had the problem with, but rather what the Pharisees and scribes were doing with the tradition. In verse 8, it says, You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of man. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commands of God in order to establish your tradition. That is to bring false judgment and shame on others elevating customs and traditions above the commandments of God. And I want to key in on the word called shame here because it relates to the word defiled 
that the Pharisees used to accuse the disciples by saying, you're eating with the defiled hands. And defiled, the word here in its original Greek, could mean unclean, unholy. And it relates to the purity traditions and customs of the Pharisees that created to stay clean as in relation to the idea of um, unholy and in, in relation to the idea of shame at that. Furthermore, why are we looking at the word shame, borrowing from Pastor Duquan, the definition of distinguishing shame and the guilt that will help us to see this better? Guilt is something that we often talk about in a Western tradition, as he often will say. It is emotion and the feeling that comes from what you and I have done. But the shame, on the other hand, deals with feeling deep within, talks about the person as a whole, the heart matter of things, of saying, I am not enough, I am dirty, I'm unclean. It deals with who you are at the heart of the matter. Guilt says, I've done something wrong, everything is my mistake, forgive me. Shame would say, I am something wrong. Everyone sees me, hide me, or forgive me. And that's what Jesus is pointing to in this text. And that's what's important for us. A window into our hearts. What's in the heart? What it reveals to us. And isn't that what you and I often wrestle with in our hearts as we come to the Lord? In the presence of God. Yes, there are things we have done. But deep down inside in our struggles and our heart, the wonder, the question that we have is, am I worth it? Am I worthy enough? Can I still come to the presence of the Lord? Can I still be accepted as who I am? Can God forgive not only what I've done, but who I am deep down inside? And here in this chapter, the Pharisees and scribes stand as accusers, pointing out the defiled hands of the disciples in shame. But in light of this, the one who is truly offended, God-man, Jesus, the Son of Man, Son of God, Son of Man, the King, confronts the Pharisees and the scribes and shows us the window into our hearts of shame. And not only he shows it to us, but he deals with it. The two things that you see through this text is first thing is that King, our King, uncovers your shame. Our king uncovers your shame. Again, the conflict begins at the Pharisees and scribes point out the unclean hands of the disciples by saying, why are they eating with defiled hands? And we must remember that he's not talking about personal hygiene here, especially during the COVID time. Yes, you do wash your hands out of the personal hygiene and not wanting to spread the germs. It was Hungarian doctor Ignaz Samowais. I think, hopefully I pronounced his name correctly, who pioneered hand washing. He didn't discover it because we knew how to wash hands before, right? But he pioneered hand washing to stop the spread of infection in 1847. Right? We wash hands as the reason why of that, that doctor who said, in, you wash hands to stop the spread of infection in 1847. So what they're talking about in this text is not about personal hygiene here, 
But the focus of the Pharisees and scribes is on the purity law. The purity law that resulted in many customs and traditions the Pharisees created in order to keep the purity law here flowed out of the desire not to defile themselves or prevent themselves from being clean or unclean so that they could appear before God's presence. And you can read all about that in the book of Leviticus, about all, this, all the, the, the purity laws that are required in order for you to stand before God. And again, to highlight the fact that God is so holy, so set apart. There's a preparation, there's a separation that's there. Again, the laws are pointing to the brokenness of our hearts, and only Christ can fulfill. Out of the purity law here, the elders um, and the, the Pharisees created this tradition of all these traditions not to place themselves in a situations where they will touch a dead animal, a dead human being, or skin disease, body discharge, blood, and all that things are impure according to Leviticus so that they wash hands, they wash the pots, and all those things. Therefore, traditions such as washing hands came about to avoid coming in contact with anything that will defile them. On the surface, it looks all good, is it not? To try to keep all those things so you could actually be present according to Levitical customs. After all, they want to be present, right, in the place of worship. And we all do that. We watch our ways especially during the COVID era, to wear masks, wash our hands, because we don't want to infect other people, as well as infect ourselves, not to be present in gatherings like this. But Jesus sees right through the motives of the Pharisees and points out another practice that they do that actually reveal their hearts. Instead of actually trying to appear before the Lord, there's some of that, but in fact, the Pharisees, what they're doing was they're being hypocritical and they're actually using the custom to elevate themselves. And here, Jesus actually points that out by another practice they use in verse 8. You leave the commandments of God and hold the traditions of man. He said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting commandments of God in order to establish your tradition. He's not saying that that's a great way. They're saying that he's being sarcastic. They're saying like, wow, what are you doing here? For Moses says, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit um, him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. To summarize, the Corban was something that was dedicated to God. So what the Pharisees would do would be to say this possessions that they will have, whether it's house or possessions or whatever it may be, they will say, I'm going to dedicate this to God. This is Corban. And they get double benefits out of it. They seem holy because they get to dedicate and say, all that I have here is dedicated to God. All this is given to God. Therefore, I am living in light of giving to God. But all the while, they get to enjoy all that they own without having to care for their elderly. And in the Western culture, caring for the, the lay parents is not something that is part of a cultural norm. I'm not saying we don't take care of our elderly, but in Eastern culture, not only because of the scripture, but culturally, it was duty and expected that you must not only care for them 
mentally, but you uh, the physically, but you actually provide for them and care for them monetarily as well. So what the Pharisees were doing is dismissing their duties and their their um, customs of the child taking care of their parents by saying, Corbin, I can't do it because I actually have to be dedicated to God. All the while, they're enjoying their own wealth and breaking the law of honoring your parents at that. So all in all, what Jesus does is uncover this folly, this shameful act of the Pharisees of using religious tradition to elevate themselves and to shame others in a hypocritical manner, and he calls them hypocrites, and rightly so, because the word hypocrite here literally means play-acting. Their zeal didn't match their hearts. As God, as Jesus uncovers their heart, you see the hypocrisy at play. You see the customs were elevated to elevate themselves rather than helping others to come into the presence of God. And Jesus uncovers this, does he not? And he points out what God reminds Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7. God looks at the heart. And here is what the disciples Jesus will do. And this is what happens when you follow our king. Jesus uncovers our shame in our lives. Shows us who we are deep down inside. Not just in your actions, but what you do and who you are and what you are. And as Pharisees soon found out that their actions, their motives are uncovered before Christ. Oftentimes, that's what we get to experience when we come to Christ because we're so much more like Pharisees than we like to admit. Deep down inside in our hearts, oftentimes we have more Pharisee tendencies than we like to admit. And we often elevate the traditions, perhaps even the traditions that you own created, the actions that we put on to elevate ourselves, to cover our own shame, of coming before the Lord. Legalism is basically a tradition that is to use to shame others. Legalism hides one's true heart in vain hope of acceptance based upon actions. And often shame is a fear factor that drives this hidden motive. That's why Jesus said to them, what did Isaiah prophesy of the hypocrites as it is written, verse 6, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And church, this is a scary verse. Scary verse at that. Teaching as doctrines the commands of man, commandments of man, you leave the commands of God and hold to the tradition of men. Church, may this be a wake-up call for many of us, all of us, as we gather to worship the Lord. Pastor Tim Keller uses this biblical illustration to show us the extent of our shame as we stand before the Lord. Citing Ray Dillard, as he speaks of the preparation that took place in the Day of Atonement, more commonly known to us as Yom Kippur, as many of us know it. A week before the high priest in the preparation of Day of Atonement was put into seclusion, taken away from his own home and into a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him, 
day by day as he washed his body and prepared his heart in preparation of the Day of Atonement. The night before the Day of Atonement, the day that he gets to appear before the presence of God, he didn't go to bed. He stayed up all night praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. And on the Day of of Atonement, he bathed head to toe and dressed in a pure, unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies and offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone, to pay the penalty for his own sin as well as sin of the nation. And guess what? This was done in public, where people are watching. There was thinly veiled garment that covered him from being exposed. He would bathe. So people watched him bathe, dread, go in and out, get ready, because they want to make sure this guy, their hope of being atoned for, uh, atoned for was pure and pure as it can be. That's why with this backdrop, the prophecy of Zechariah 3 is shocking. In Zechariah chapter 3, prophet Zechariah sees a vision. Joshua, the high priest, standing before the presence of God, the high priest who had done all this in the Holy of Holies, but Joshua's garments were covered in excrement. And it says in chapter 3, verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who had chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua, the high priest, was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. He was absolutely defiled. And this prophet could not believe it. How could that happen? Remember the context. How would the Israelites let this happen? The high priest filled with a dirty garment standing before God in accusation against Satan. But the vision was given to Zechariah to show him how God sees us. No matter how clean you may think you are, in spite of all our efforts to be pure, to be good, to be moral, to be cleansed, when you're uncovered before the Lord in shame of who you are, He sees our hearts, and our hearts are full of filth. And that's what discipleship is, guys. As you get closer and closer and closer to Christ on your journey with Him, you will see it. I will see it. And that's what Jesus does, doesn't it? Traditions should work to help us to see it. It is not the solution. If done correctly, the customs and traditions to show us who we are, not just some of us that do not follow or follow, it should show that we all fall short and chained before the king. As we follow Christ, as he uncovers more and more of us, you will see more and more of your heart that are shameful before the Lord. Because nothing that we do can give us the cleansing to stand before the Lord. And as you follow the king, he'll go deeper into your heart. He'll go deeper. 
The stories we saw so far where Jesus encounters the demon-possessed, the sick, the ostracized, all begin with external actions and circumstances, but he doesn't stop there. He brings them deeper and reveals what's in their hearts, deeper still. I think the application is very clear for us as we come before the Lord this morning. Don't hide in following Christ. Do not run the other way as you come closer to him. Oftentimes we say, I want to go to church. I want to be closer to the Lord. But all of our hearts are running far away from the Lord. As you are more and more revealed in light of who God is, in light of what God is calling you to do, oftentimes what we find people do is, myself included, is rather than running to the Lord, we often find our hearts running away from the Lord. And worse yet, you know what we do? We hide. We get lost in the crowd. We do all the right things, but still lost in the, crowd, uh, in the crowd. We could only seek out comfort rather than challenge. We seek out places of comfort, saying, accept me as who I am only, instead of being challenged to grow and change. We only seek out health, wealth, prosperity, instead of the cross and sacrifice. Oh, how easy it is for us to point to traditions and customs and culture to make us feel comfortable. Hey, I want to be in a place where this custom, surrounded by people, when we say we want to be surrounded by people, how I was raised and grew up, basically we're saying I want traditions, customs that make me feel comfortable. Oftentimes we run towards that rather than seeking the cross of Christ to challenge us to grow, to elevate the commands of God instead of the tradition of men. Far too often, even in our Reformed tradition, church, we elevate our conviction in the doctrine and belief. I'm a Reformed pastor. I'm a PCA-ordained pastor, and I love my denomination. I love our doctrine. And I have my convictions in the things we believe in. I abide by Westminster Confession of Faith. And I believe it's a beautiful document that highlights our conviction. But sometimes, sometimes we can be found elevating our doctrine, our customs, and the way we do things at the expense of loving others. When done properly, I believe, church, when we elevate the word of the Lord as we are called to do, when we elevate what we're called to follow, what we're elevating is actually the Word of God. And John 1 tells us, Word of God is Christ and Christ himself. So what we'll find is Christ, when we elevate Christ, we'll humble ourselves to the point of the cross because that's what Christ has done. And that's how we practice theology, not just hammering people with these doctrines of logic and saying, do you know this? But how we ought to do is not hammer people with doctrine of logic. What we should say is, do you know Christ who loves you? As we elevate the word of the Lord, the confession that flows from the word, our practice ought to be, do you love the Lord? Do you know who loves you? By humbling ourselves, loving others, especially for those whom we call our neighbors. In our church, in our city, in our world. Church, do not hide. Do not hide behind the teachings and doctrines even. But come boldly as who you are, as you follow Christ you will not be forgotten. And as you follow Christ, you can help but to be uncovered in your shame. You will continuously be uncovered 
And that is fine because Christ will cover it. And I pray that Christ Central will be a place where Christ is at the center, elevated. Amen? Second thing we see is not only following the king uncovers your shame, but the king will cover your shame. The confidence that we could have is the king also covers your shame as you come uncovered in your shame. Here Jesus invites the disciples now, after the Pharisees accuse him, he invites them and says, hey, come. Come, let me tell you some things. Let me teach you. And by using the analogy and parable, he teaches them and us what it means to follow Christ. In verse 14, he called to the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Understand here is suniyeme, which means to put it together. Understand it. Be wise in it. Grow in it. Be discipled in it. That's what Christ is saying to disciples. Come. You see the accusation? Come. This is what I want you to learn. Verse 14, it says, And he called to the disciples and people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, understand. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him. But the thing that come out of a person that are, uh, are what defiles him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach? and is expelled. Thus, he declare all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For, for from within, out of the hearts of men, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus is highlighting the importance of the heart. And what he gets down to the fact, what Jesus is saying, whether you eat clean or unclean food, it goes into your body and literally comes out of your behind into the bathroom. It's not the food that corrupts someone. You're already corrupt, right? We are what's wrong. Our heart is the issue. That's what Jesus is saying. And he doesn't end there. He just doesn't end say, you're messed up. It doesn't matter what you try to do. It, you could eat all the clean foods all you want. You could do all the right things for the church. You could give all you can, do all these things, but ultimately that's not good enough. Just like Joshua the high priest. No matter how righteous you think as you stand before the Lord, you'll be absolutely uncovered. Maybe people won't see it. Maybe the church won't even see it, but he will see it. But he doesn't end there, Right? He provides a solution. What is that? Again, Christ is the only one that could cover the shame. And he does this by saying two things. Number one, he declares all foods clean. Mark doesn't normally give a commentary like this one when he says Jesus declared all foods clean. So it's important for us to know that when he does that. Uh, commentators note that here, Jesus doesn't say, it is not written, and Jesus says all foods were clean. The emphasis is on that he declares this to be true. He pronounced it. So what the commentators say is that Jesus is declaring that all food is clean with authority because in him, all foods are clean. He's saying, here, I'm the Alpha and Omega. I'm the creator of all things. I declare now the food is clean. The purity laws have been fulfilled in him and all the tradition and all the law that were designed to help you get closer to God is finally fulfilled in him. 
Here is the one that you need in order to stand before God pure and clean. That's what he's saying. Here Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of all that the law pointed towards. I'm the only one that could deal not only with external issues, but the internal heart issue. Hence, he shows authority over the whole debate about the clean and unclean food. But secondly, he names the sin. He names all the sin. Another word to say, he defines sin for us. It is not tradition. It is not culture. It is not tradition and culture that sin offends. Who does sin offend at the heart of it all? God and God alone. So it is the one who gets offended who defines what sin is, right? And that's important for us to know. The offended party knows exactly what is offensive to him, not the offender. Remember, sin and first and foremost is not only offense to yourself and others, but it is at first and foremost an offense to God. And here Jesus, by naming the sin, is saying that these sins are offensive to God, offensive to him. And he says, look at these sins. From within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. When it comes to sexual immorality, the Greek word here is another word for pornea, uh, commonly known as pornography. But this sexual immorality term is conclusive of sexual sins outside of what God deems to be in a sanctity of marriage between men and women. Again, it is not the world that defines what sin of sexuality is. It is not reform tradition that defines what sin of sexuality is. It is God, Christ himself, who gets to say what sin is, especially when it comes to sin of sexuality. So what we're saying as a church is we ought to submit ourselves fully at the foot of the cross to condemn any sin, any sexual immorality outside of marriage context between men and women, not because tradition says so, not because the custom says so, not because that's how you grew up, but because the Bible, the scripture tells us so, because Christ gets to define it. But furthermore than that, I love the fact all the other sins are defined in the same manner. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Did you catch all that? Oftentimes when we read these texts, we focus so much on sexual immorality and say, condemned are you? Look at this. But look at all the other sins that are there. All the sins we often gloss over. All the sins we often consider small. And in our own mind, in our own tradition, we rank them. But Christ doesn't do that. Don't you think the church of Christ will be more welcoming place if we sin as sin and not elevate one sin over the other? If we define all sin as sin, meaning your foolish comments just as offensive to as a sexual morality, your slander, your pride, your envy, your coveting, your wickedness of not loving your neighbor, it's just 
as offensive as sexual immorality. Wouldn't we be a place, a church, a welcoming place, when we all realize we all have fallen short together, collectively, short of the glory of God, no matter what kind of sin you bring to the table. God hates sin of misogyny, racism, envy, and slander, pride, and foolishness as much as he hates sexuality, homosexuality. Our posture, must toward, our posture toward sin must be that all sin, not just sexuality, has fallen short of God's standard, God's law. No tradition can define what is higher than the other. And not only is he saying that he's offended by this, but what he will show is that he alone can deal with this. That means all sin and our flaw, shame, can come, become overcome by God's grace. Because God will deal with the heart. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The promise is that we can keep it. You and I cannot keep it. That's the promise of the eternal covenant. God will write the law in your hearts. He will do the work for us. He will die on the cross. Today, you are washed clean, not because you have followed a set of rules or kept traditions or you have obeyed all the right things, but because his grace washes over you. As you sit here this morning, the promise of the gospel says you're forgiven, you're washed clean, you're accepted as who you are when you are in Christ Jesus our Lord. God sees Jesus has done in the place of you on the cross. He's pleased with you because of what Christ has done for you. That's the promise of the gospel. When I was in high school, I struggled with my identity. And one of the ways that I wrestled with what it means to be a high school student was often go out and try to find meaning in lots of different things. I found try to find meaning in underage drinking, try to fit in with the crowd. I tried to fit in by doing all the things that my friends were doing, hoping that by being in this crowd, I would be defined and find some meaning in that. And oftentimes, I would go and I would tell my parents, especially my mom, I won't be back for a couple hours. And she would often ask, where are you going? And I would say, I would just be going out for a while. And I won't come back until 3 or 4 in the morning. And every time I would leave, I see my mom waiting, waiting for me. And every day I would come back early in the morning, she would be staying up wee hours of the night until I come back. And we just simply say, welcome home, and go back to sleep. And I think if my parents, especially my mom, reacted by saying, like, what are you doing, son? What have I not taught you? Remember all the things I taught you? Why are you breaking those things? I think if she came out like that, I think my heart would have been broken more. But you know what she did oftentimes? And I think some of you do this too. Like, every time I would get up to leave, to go, my mom would embrace me. And he would say, you are my son. You are God's son. And every time I leave the door, she would say, I'll be home waiting for you. And after a night out with friends, I'll come back smelling like the places I've been at. And when I came home, she would embrace me. And all my filth, 
in all my brokenness. And she would do this. Ah, smell of my son. I was filled with filth of the outside, brought it home as I am, embraced by my loving mom's embrace. Church, I'm not trying to elevate my mom, not trying to elevate or separate what was bad and what was good. What I want to emphasize is the fact that the embrace of acceptance was felt and that embrace beckoned me back home. I hope our church and our community is a place like this, where you are covered, you are come and uncovered in your shame and nakedness, but also be covered by the grace of God. You know what that means? That means you're going to have issues with our church. <laughs> I'm a sinner, uncovered in shame. And our leadership, although much better than I am, are full of people who is uncovered in shame. We gather together as people who are full of shame, try to lead a church, people full of shame, if I may offend you. You're just like us. Quite often, it'll be how we have fallen short as leaders, but also be how you have fallen short as disciples of Christ. I shared this with someone recently in our church. Christ Central is a strange place. You know why? Because you will not be comfortable here. No one is. And I was telling that person, I'm a Korean-American pastor in our church, in predominantly biracial church. I'm a Korean-American pastor, Asian-American, second generation, less than perhaps 10% in PCA. Our African-American brothers and sisters within our PCA is less than 1%. It is not a comfortable place whatsoever. Our church can be a place that's not a comfortable place. Not only for me, but our black members here, white members here, whatever ethnicity you may be, this is not a comfortable place. Perhaps some of you feel like this is not a safe place. But you know what? I love it here. You know why? Because I'm not comfortable. Because I don't need that. I don't think the Bible tells me to be comfortable. If I need to be comfortable, I'll find something else. I'll join a club. Right? I'll gather people that look like me and have fun. Do what I want to do. But that's not the cross. What I need and what you need is a place where you and I, all of us, gather together, uncovered in our shame, and be uncomfortable. That's the church. That's Christ-centered church, not people-centered, traditional-centered, feeling-centered church. When Christ alone is magnified, exalted, where you and I come as who we are, we will not be comfortable because the only place where you and I can find comfort is by who Christ is. That's the discipleship. Meaning our place, our church has to be a place where it's so uncomfortable for every single person to come so that we all can be comforted by Christ and Christ alone. That's church. That's a place of following Christ. So church, come and be uncomfortable. Come ready to be uncovered in your shame. Come as who you are 
and receive grace that is available for us. Remember Zechariah, the high priest? That's how God sees us. But grace is that we have another high priest. We have another Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus at that, who stands before God as a spotless Lamb of God. Here is Jesus who takes away sin of our fallen hearts. Here is Christ who clothes us with robe of righteousness so that you and I, in our brokenness, in our uncovered shame, can be covered in the grace of God that's available for us. We're going to actually practice this together. For those who profess their faith in Christ, we actually get to practice together in our application by partaking confession of prayer and in Lord's Supper. When we partake in Lord's Supper and confession of prayer, we de- basically we declare this, saying, God, I come uncovered. Before you, this is who I am. I'm not worthy. But as I partake in this supper that you invite me, the torn flesh and spilled blood remind me of the why I could come. And for those who do not have their faith in Christ, this is gospel invitation for you. So let's pray together, shall we not?